Uh, good evening, everybody, and good evening, everybody online. And it's a delight on this Saturday night to be gathered around the Word of God and to have you all here. Now, uh, so far, the main point so far, there's a sense in which this, even though this has been announced as a three-session conference, I realized after last Sunday morning that really last Sunday morning's message was the opening message of the series that would follow. So uh, for those online who weren't here, of course, you can go to our YouTube channel and find the message from last Sunday. And it was about, well, here was the, the, main, the main point came from this scripture, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. And we explored what that meant and what it meant to be um, priests and uh, also with respect to the judgment of the righteous, that all came into that. Last night, the primary subject was about how to read the book of Revelation and that is because if you don't approach that book properly, you get an entirely wrong view of the future. Now we're, we're online, great. I can ditch this, <clears throat> and uh, right, uh, hands free, that feels good now. So <clears throat> yes, the reason for discussing the book of Revelation last night is to move it out of the road as a roadblock, as a hindrance to understanding so much else that is in the Bible. If you, if you get the book of Revelation in its true perspective, and by the way, it is absolutely one of the most important books in the Bible, and, and it speaks to everything, but if you think it is about the end of the world and it's in your future that gives you a disastrous belief system. But if you understand that the things prophesied in there all occurred 2,000 years ago and actually the Great Tribulation took place 2,000 years ago, then you can read what's in the book of Revelation with entirely new eyes and uh, you're free to explore its symbolism and all that it tells us that we need to know. But it frees us up then to fully understand a wealth of other scripture, and in particular, all the kingdom prophecies. Anyway, tonight, we're going to take a look at the subject of the new heavens and the new earth. The difficulty with this subject is that it's huge. And, uh, you know, if, if, how, would, how would you fit a huge elephant in a tiny little room? You know, it's very difficult to do. And the best I can do is try and give you uh, an, a good overview as rapidly as possible Probably it'd be ideal if you had two or three sessions, you know, in a longer conference to deal with this properly. But nevertheless, the Bible talks about something called a new heavens and a new earth. And here are the four principal scriptures. Well, the obvious ones. There are others, but the, the most obvious ones that, that use that terminology are these. Isaiah 65, and if, if Connor's real fast, they'll appear on the screen uh, as fast as I can go through them. And you can look at them there. Isaiah 65, the Lord speaking, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. And then at the very end of the, the prophet Isaiah, just the next chapter, but these are long chapters, toward the end of that chapter, he says in verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. So here, um, early in chapter 65 and late in chapter 66 of Isaiah, you get reference to this new heavens and new earth, and a fair bit is said in those two chapters about the new heavens and the new earth. Then the third place, there are only four of these in the scriptures, the third place where you'll find this is in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Peter says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
And notice Peter says, particularly according to his promise. And there's, you say, well, where's the promise? Well, the promise is in the first verse that I read to you, Isaiah 65, 17, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. So Peter said that it's in accordance with that promise that he was waiting for something to happen. And we will find out what that was. And then second last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Interesting reference to the sea there. What you should know is that the sea was a symbol for the Gentile world. Under the old covenant, there was Jew and Gentile and the, the tossing and foaming and, of the sea and the roaring of its waves had to do with the unrest of peoples in the world and the, and the tumult of nations. But the sea in general was simply a symbol for the Gentile world, whereas in the book of Revelation, the land is a symbol for Israel. So when you get this mighty angel come and he plants one foot on the sea and one foot on the land, once you know the symbolism, you know what this is talking about. He proclaims with a loud voice and he's got this little scroll and, and so on and so forth. It's just full of symbolism, but you need to understand the symbolism. And so, you know, he stands, you know, authority over all the nations. And of course, the message of the gospel is that this mighty angel, it's, it's most likely Jesus represented here as a mighty angel. He, he takes it all together and, and the two become one new man. Anyway, I've read to you the four scriptures about the new heaven and earth that's spoken of. Could I say, because I need to give you the position I'm going to try and explain is that these scriptures are not referring to a new cosmos. That is not referring to a new planet or a new moon or a new sun, not new galaxies, not new stars. That these scriptures are not referring to the wiping away of creation as we know it and a whole new natural creation. In other words, it's not speaking of the natural world or the material world. It's actually speaking, now listen carefully, of something more real, even more real. Remember, the scripture clearly says that the things that we see, in other words, this, the material world, the things that we see were made out of things that are invisible. And so when we read of, a, of all this change going on in the so-called heavens and the earth, it's talking about invisible things. It's talking about spiritual things. Now, it has ramifications. It affects life. Life changes. But it's not actually referring to the cosmos. So that's, that's the thesis. And I'm going to try and show you how valid that is with respect to what those scriptures are talking about. You will find that... The, the, the new heavens and the new earth we're going to speak of is actually more real, not less real than the cosmos. And that when the Bible speaks of the old heavens and the old earth and the new heavens and the new earth, it's actually to, speaking about power and authority and structure and administration and governments and the atmosphere in which we live. It has a great deal to do with who is in charge and with what life is like in the age. So each, each heaven and earth, so to speak, represents an age in the dealings of men. The old covenant age, the new covenant age, the, the consummate or the eternal age to come, and so on and so forth. So to help you see this, um, 
we have to go back to another scripture that's in Isaiah 55 to give you an inkling that when in, in God's mind, when he's speaking about heavens and earth, he's speaking about in, invisible things that are terribly, terribly important to do with creation, in particular to do with the human race. Now, I'm going to show you this in the King James Version, Isaiah 51. It, it, it says the same thing in the ESV and the like, but this is where what we're trying to bring out of it just happens to be quite clear in the old language. So Isaiah 51, verses 15, 16, there it is. Now see if you can read all that's packed into these few lines. But I am the Lord thy God that divided the sea, whose waves roared, the Lord of hosts is his name. I've put my words in thy mouth, and I have covered thee in the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth, and say unto Zion, thou art my people. Now, if you look at carefully the component parts of the statement, he starts off by saying, I am the Lord thy God, and this reminds us very much of the Ten Commandments and God introducing himself to Israel. And it gets even clearer with the next phrase, that divided the sea. This has to do with the, 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 divide, the parting of the Red Sea for Israel to come out of Egypt, whose waves roared, the Lord of hosts is his name, and I have put my words in thy mouth. This is the word of the covenant. He, he gave them words. In fact, they came to Mount Sinai and, and uh, were fearing the words and said, Moses, you listen to these words and tell us what he says. As for us, you know, and um, that's where his word came to them. This is the first covenant. And then I've covered thee in the shadow of my hand. It reminds us of the story of Moses in the cleft of the rock up on that mountain. But this is the kind of language used with respect to God bringing Israel out of Egypt. They were not a people. They weren't even all descended from Jacob. It was a mixed multitude of slaves. But he brings them all out of a people, out of Egypt, declares them to be a people, makes covenant with them before Sinai. And this, this astounding work of grace is taking place in the history of salvation. This is really something, something new, something deep, something astounding is being put in place. And look how he describes it. He did all of these things. He, he brought Israel to Sinai and he makes this covenant with them. He gives them his word so that, it says, I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth there was something right here that represented, in God's mind, a new heaven and a new earth. Or at least the heavens and the earth being put in place. And say unto Zion, thou art my people. And as I've thought about this, what could it be? What could the heavens refer to? What could the earth refer to? Uh, we'll come to that a little bit more yet. But obviously in the dealings between God and man, there are things that are heavenly things and things that are earthly things. And they have to do with administrations and governments and the way in which you can approach God and all that's in the covenant, the way in which we worship, the way in which we govern ourselves, the way in which God governs the world, and so on and so forth. Just to give you another inkling that when the Bible talks about heavens and earth, it might not totally be talking about the cosmos, Take a look at this little passage from 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, 2 Peter 3 is the most graphic description of meltdown and, and you know, fiery tumult and the heavens dissolving and, and the earth laid bare by fire. And it sounds so graphic, you think, man, this is cosmic meltdown. And yet, when you look really closely at the language, it's talking about the burning up of the old covenant and the, and the laying bare of the hearts of men 
that this new heavens and new earth might be put in place. And uh, so anyway, here's, a, here's an inkling of it. For they, Peter says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Now he is there talking about the cosmos and creation. And he goes on to say that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What world was it that perished? It wasn't the planet. It wasn't the moon or the stars. It wasn't the galaxy. So when Peter says the world that was then perished, what world was he talking about? He's talking about the world of men. And then he says, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist. Hang on. If you're thinking cosmos, see the heavens and earth that now exist, he's saying the old heavens and earth perished. The heavens and earth that now exist are being reserved. See, he's not talking about the cosmos at all because the cosmos we have right now is the same one that they had before the flood. And so... No, something else is at play here. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist. The heavens and earth that existed at this time was still left over from the old covenant. It had not been destroyed. Anyway, this is the thesis, and I'm going to show you all kinds of things to think about that might help you see that this is in larger part the application of this message. Now, if you don't think, if you don't think that much has changed from the time of the old covenant to the time of the new, such that it could be called a new heaven and a new earth, you might have to think again. Here's a passage that has astounding implications. Uh, Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 7, I'll read all seven verses. And you, now now bear in mind, this is going to describe life for you under the new covenant, in other words, under the new heavens and in the new earth, quite different to what life was like for the believer under the old heaven and in the old earth. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now its work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Right. If you think about the implications of this one statement alone, he made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. Oh, when Christ was raised from the dead, you were raised raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. If you think about the implications of that statement alone, you have to realize everything has changed. This is a whole new deal. Right there, right there in that statement alone, two things 
two seriously important things are different about both the heavens and the earth. What is it different about the heavens? To start with, because of the cross and the resurrection and his ascension to glory, Christ has been exalted. Scripture says he went through the heavens and exalted to the highest heavens. He is ruling, he is judging, and in the process he cracked a lot of heads. So you don't know about this, and script, but Scripture speaks of it. He took prisoners, he stripped them of their weapons, he leads them in triumphal procession, stuff that we know little about, but the Bible says it was true. In other words, whatever was in the heavenly places governing the affairs of men. And the Bible says in another place, all things were made by Christ and for him, whether rulers, authorities, principalities, powers. In other words, the heavens were full of these things. And whilst we still have some, especially in the lower regions of the heavenlies, what's called the air, because remember the devil is still called the prince of the power of the air. And this has to do with the lower heavenlies. But Christ, with his resurrection, immediately removed a whole lot of those authorities and replaced them and became the highest ruler above all. That is a huge change in the heavenlies. To start with, it's a complete change of government. It's a change of administration. And it's a complete change for the direction of this world. And, and moreover, here's the most astounding thing. He did it as a man. This is the message of Scripture. As the last Adam, it is a man who is... See, see um, Satan deceived Eve and triumphed over Adam. Christ came, replaced Adam, died for the sins of the world, and that's Adam in you, and then took this place as the man who is the leader of the human race and is raised to the highest place and right now is ruling all the heavens and all the earth, this is a huge change. No wonder it says there's a new heaven. And that's just the Christ part. Now that's new. As of 2,000 years ago, that was new. Well, that's only the first thing that's, that's in that one statement. There's another. And it's this, that not only is Christ seated in the highest heavens and governing, but you are. It says right here, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. That's you now, if you know your position in Christ. So you are there now, you're in the heavens, you're seated with him, you're made a priest to serve God, and you're given authority. But so many don't know how to use their authority. But that's new. See, that was never there before. There was, there was no man in the heavenlies before, not even the one, Christ, but now... We're all in the heavenlies. If you would know your place, if you'd live the holy life, begin to exercise the authority of Jesus, you can make this world different. That's new on what was before. And so um, these two things, Christ in the heavens, you in the heavens, that's changed everything. And not only in the heavens, it changes everything on the earth. But there's a third great change. All the righteous dead, Abraham, Samuel, David, Moses, Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, we could name a lot of them, Enoch, 
Noah, they were not in the heavens. Prior to the ascension of Jesus, they were not in the heavens. They were in Sheol. The Bible calls it Abraham's bosom. The Bible calls it paradise. Remember Jesus on the cross said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. When Christ died, he went to Abraham's bosom and preached. He was there three days, give or take, teaching and preaching. And when Christ broke the power of death, rose from the dead, ascended to his father, he emptied Abraham's bosom and all the righteous saints of all the ages past who'd been waiting in paradise were released from beneath the earth and taken into the heavenlies and they are in the heavenlies. That's, a, that's new as of 2,000 years ago. A new heavens and a new earth comes out of all of this. So with regard to the new heavens, it was the cross and the resurrection that opened up the heavenly places. Triumphal powers being stripped and, and this great and conquering victory and a change of government. We mentioned all this. This is why Peter preached, by the way. He preached on the day of Pentecost. You can find his sermons in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 5. He preaches, this Jesus whom you crucified has been made Lord. And then Jesus came back and said, all authority in heaven and earth given to me. And so there's a new regime, a new government, there's a new order. And friends, what about the earth? Gospel realities are here to stay. Jesus had said, now the God of this world will be cast out. The book of Revelation says Satan has been bound for a thousand years. I explained last night, or was it last Sunday, what that thousand years meant. A, a huge, in, almost interminable period of time. Immeasurable, so vast that the gospel will be at work in this world. Christ will reign before the end of the age comes. Satan has been bound for a thousand years. Do you know why? The gospel is the chain. He cannot stop the gospel going to nations, saving, de delivering people from drugs, alcohol, addictions of all kinds, prostitution, delivering them from their sins. The gospel goes out every day. Another 20,000 souls come to Christ across the world. Satan is bound with, he cannot stop the gospel, no matter how hard he tries well, anyway, a lot of that has to do with new heavens. But new earth, the gospel has cha changed life for you, didn't it? You stepped into something. It's changing the nations. I heard a Pakistani woman say last year, where would we be without Jesus? And there's so many books on how the gospel has changed the world. I don't have time to spend on it now, but it is a new earth. And even though it's still, it, it was to begin with, when, when Christ first ascended, just a wilderness of peoples, the gospel was taming that wilderness, civilizing the wilderness, so much, much more so in your lifetime, and it's still going on, and bit by bit, conquered over time. Once the heavens were changed, the earth began to change because it was a new atmosphere. What were the immediate changes in this new earth? Now, when I say immediate, uh, I didn't mean in a minute, but what were the changes that took place in short order following the resurrection of Jesus that so shook the powers of the heavens and so changed things on the earth to help get us a sense of the new earth? It's, it's this. Jesus spoke about big things in his final days. Woe to the Jewish leaders destruction of the temple and the city 
wrath of God being poured out, the Holy Spirit coming, that the apostles and the church would go to all nations. They're big things. They're big things going on in the earth. And what, what did we get? We got the resurrection. We got Pentecost. We got the Holy Spirit given to us all. We got a new temple that is Christ, the old temple destroyed. There's a new house. That's the body of Christ. We're in it. The old house, the old temple, the old priesthood, all destroyed. There's a new priesthood. The dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile got removed. And the word of this gospel is the sword coming out of the mouth of the Lamb of God to conquer the nations. That's book of Revelation symbolism. And, but not only that, he said in the Old Testament that his terrible swift sword, that's the same sword that comes out of his mouth, which is the word of God, which is the gospel. It's the word that's in your mouth. That same sword, the Old Testament prophet said, was a terrible swift sword that would slay the slithering monster of the deep. In other words, Leviathan, that is Satan. And the, but the sword's in your hand as well as in your mouths. So guess what? Guess what really got put into the earth? A lot of priests, that is a lot of believers with authority who carry a sword. That's you. You have a given authority. This is new. This is the new heavens and the new earth and it's a reality. It's astounding. Before... At Sinai, he shook the earth. But the Old Testament prophet promised that a time would come when he would shake not only the earth, but he'd shake the heavens. And I'll show you that scripture in a minute because he did. And when the time came to shake the heavens, that's when the wrath of God fell on Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and the city and the priesthood and, and all of the Levitical system and uh, Old Covenant Israel perished forever it is no more Israel hasn't perished not the real Israel not those who are in the faith then or in the faith since not the real Israel of God but old covenant Israel as a nation the old Levitical system of sacrifices the old Levitical economy it perished forever never to be rebuilt as the scripture says God is a holy and consuming fire the old heavens and the old earth perished in fire now, I said you have authority. I said here, under this new heaven, we, we live on new ground. We're talking spiritual things. We're under a new heaven. We live in a new earth, spiritually speaking. And you have authority. You have a sword in your hand. You have a sword in your mouth. You've been given authority. I'll give you a couple of personal examples. I grow mangoes. Uh, 165 trees I have and flying foxes get around Queensland and eat fruit and you know they come in big big numbers and colonies settle in but on our property I've never seen a flying fox we've never had a mango touched by a flying fox because I don't allow it one day I came out my front gate it was just on dusk the mangoes were a quarter of a mile behind me down in the bottom field and it was right on harvest time the mangoes were just getting right, ripe and as I come to my front gate and open and drive out and shut the gate behind I look up right in front of me here are all these trees filled with thousands and thousands of flying foxes a whole colony had just moved in and right then 
twilight had arrived and they were taking to the air in huge numbers and beginning to turn and they were heading straight toward my front gate. And of course you would go straight down overhead over the road right to where the mangoes are and I stood there and in the name of the Lord Jesus forbade them permission to fly over my property. They're not touching my mangoes and there they were already in the air and heading for my gate and they all turned and they flew off in some other direction and the next day when I came out they had all gone. The whole colony had moved on. It must have camped for one night. Well that's just very simple exercise of authority. Do you think it can't be done? No, here's what Jesus said. After he'd cursed the fig tree and it had died, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And so Jesus freely spoke of the kind of authority that believers, when he says, if you have faith, he's talking about people who walk with the Lord. Well, you want a more spiritual example? There's nothing unspiritual about saving your mangoes, actually. But years ago, we had, I, I had a pastor come to see me one day, burdened, because uh, a young preacher from down south had turned up and had asked if he could use his church building for a Saturday night meeting. And he said that was fine. And, and of course, some of his own people, quite a few of his own people came to the meeting and others and flies had been put out. But it turned out that this young preacher who'd come kind of uninvited, invited himself, claimed that he was an apostle and the Lord had sent him and every pastor in this city had to obey him. And he had this arrogant message of control. He was a total stranger to us, but he had done this meeting in this building and claimed all these things and he was coming back to do another and this pastor felt trapped. He, he didn't, because this fellow was very strong and commanding and he didn't know how to get out of it. And he, this fellow had already influenced quite a few of his people. And he came to me and I said, we, we can finish this right here. And so I, I prayed with him and in the name of the Lord Jesus, cut off the, these evil claims and in the spirit realm, shut the doors to the city, to this young false apostle and commanded, you will not return to this city. You will not preach in this city. You have no authority in this city. Your claims are false and you're not coming back. And that was the end of it. Nothing more was ever heard because you deal with these things in the spirit realm. Now, this is life under the new heavens and the new earth. It is not like what it used to be under the old covenant. We have a new covenant. This is why Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven. Yes, he inaugurated the kingdom of heaven with his resurrection. New heavens, the kingdom was established and whatever you bind on earth, he said, shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Romans 5.17, take a look. If because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Take a look at Revelation 5, 9 to 10. 
And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you are slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. All this is new with the gospel, because the heavens and the earth have experienced a huge change, a change of covenant. Remember, when, with the establishing of the old covenant, he, he, he planted the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. He's talking about something in the spirit realm. And with the new covenant, it got even a whole lot better. So here's some of the new things that come with the new heavens and the new earth. That is, came with the gospel. Uh, Jesus said, new wine and new wineskins. You can't have the new wine and not have the new wineskins. Don't have time to expand that out. But the body of Christ is the new wineskin. And the life of Jesus given to us by the Holy Spirit is the new wine. Then he said, new covenant. You know, likewise, after the cup, this is Luke 22, 20. He, after that eaten, he, gave, he came to the cup. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And he gave a new commandment. You know, you know the one that you love one another, John 13. Here's a telling one, Romans 7, 6. But now we are released from the law. See, look, the living subject to the law was the way it was under the old heavens and the old earth, in the old earth. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And then the New Testament makes much of you and I being a new creation. It's very interesting that it uses that language, that creation language. It doesn't just talk about you being saved. It talks about you in more than one place being a new creation. Very suitable language to go hand in hand with the idea of new heavens and new earth. So uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, for example, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Notice the free use of this language in the New Testament. The free use of this, uh, you know, old has gone, new has come. It shows up everywhere. Galatians 6 and verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus by which the world has been crucified to me. Now there's a big change. An eye to the world. Oh, something has gone on. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. In other words, if you're born again, once again, you are that new creation. And here's one more. Under the old heavens, Jew and Gentile were separate. That, this is under the old covenant. Not prior to the old covenant, but under the old covenant or the times of the old covenant, Jew and Gentile were separate from one another and hostile. But in the new creation and under the new heavens, there is no more Jew and Gentile in Christ. We are one new man. And notice it says new again. Here's the text, Ephesians 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Now, this is different. This is new. This is a huge change. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And then... 
The New Testament has a bit to say about the new self and your need to put the new self on. Here's an example, Ephesians 4.21. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So friends, under new heavens means we're under a different sky. That is a different atmosphere. Grace abounding, redemption in place. The son of man is in heaven. He is our advocate with the father and we have a free approach to the throne of grace, stuff that was largely unknown in previous ages, especially to the Gentiles. And we live on new ground. That is the ground, the ground of our lives is entirely new in Christ. This is the new earth. The gospel has power. There is deliverance for all people. Satan is bound. There's authority in our mouths. We have healing power. And we represent, you and I represent personally the Son of Man. Isn't that astounding? You speak for Jesus. You have the power of his name. You can command things in his name and you're obeyed. Flying foxes obey me. They would obey you too if you needed them to. Here's an interesting one. You'll find this scripture most interesting of all. Matthew 19, verse 27. And Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, now, in the regeneration is what you will find in other translations. And so in the, in the new life, in the regenerated life, in the regeneration of this world, that's going on now ever since the gospel was given to this world, ever since Christ arose, the Holy Spirit came, the old system was finally destroyed in the destruction of Jerusalem. Regeneration has been going on in this world the gospel being preached, people constantly being brought to life, more and more believers in the world, the world, nations being transformed more and more by truth. He says, in the, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, let me ask you a question. When did the Son of Man sit on his glorious throne? The Bible's been saying for 2,000 years, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He took this position 2,000 years ago. From that time, this scripture is true on earth and in heaven. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. When it is said that someone is enthroned, does it mean they're sitting on a chair? It doesn't mean that. There might have been a ceremony where they sat on the chair once and a crown got put on their head or something. Listen, if, if I say tonight Christ is enthroned and seated at the right hand of the Father, it doesn't mean he's sitting on a chair and it doesn't mean that he's in a particular spot in heaven and can't move. When we say the Queen of England is, has a throne or she's, she's seated upon the throne of England, Australia too, when we say that, we don't mean she's sitting on a chair. 
She could be going down the street in a Rolls Royce and, you know, waving at the crowds. She could be out riding the horse, you know, out the back paddock of one of those castles, which she likes to do. But all the while, she is enthroned. She is seated on the throne of uh, the United Kingdom and so on. So when the scripture speaks of the apostles being enthroned, it speaks of governing authority and authority to judge. But this is what Jesus says to every believer. You can read it for yourself. In Revelation chapter 2 or 3, he says, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. And that is something you achieve in this life, not just waiting for the next. A lot of these are overlapping concepts. You're raised in the heavenlies in this life and the next. You're ruling and reigning with Jesus in this life and the next. And it's all part of this same new heavens and new earth. And everyone, you know, this, he's talking earthly things here because he goes on to say, and everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or lands or children for my sake will receive a hundredfold as much. And will inherit eternal life. And so, how are we going for time? Got a few minutes. How to understand 2 Peter chapter 3? Because this is where Peter said, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And you could say, well, Peter wrote that sometime well after the resurrection. The church had already been formed. The day of Pentecost was years before. The Holy Spirit had been poured out. Apostles had gone everywhere preaching. Churches had sprung up all over the world. If the new heavens and the new earth was a reality that shifted along with the cross and the resurrection and the day of Pentecost, you know, Christ's ascension and the like, why would Peter say 25 or 30 years later in this epistle, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth? And this is because the process had not completed. They had not yet reached the time of the wrath of God being poured out that destroyed the old covenant. The old covenant was still functioning, even though with the sacrifice of Christ, he had nullified the validity and the place and the power of those animal sacrifices, nevertheless, they continued to be made. The book of Hebrews was written in the same period where those off offerings were still being made, even though Jesus had replaced them. And so you had in Jerusalem the most amazing building in the entire Roman Empire, that is the temple. Jerusalem was the wealthiest city in the Roman Empire. People sent money and treasure to it from all over the world. Untold thousands of pilgrims came every year to it to worship and bring riches. And the, the Jewish religion there it sat covered in gold and had huge power and Christianity was only regarded up to this point as a sect of Judaism. And the power of that thing in the world has a functioning priesthood and a temple and, you know, synagogues and people everywhere that are loyal to that. 
it had to be destroyed to emancipate the gospel and to bring in, uh, to, you know, to properly remove the ground of the old heavens and the old earth and its claims upon the nations or that weren't very effective anyway, but to, to, there had to be a complete change. And this is why the Bible talks about, the, Jesus said, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, if you're going to have a new heaven, you've got to remove the old heaven. And from my reading of the scripture, there are, there's not one time, but a number of times in which uh, huge changes take place in the heavenly realms. And of course, one of them was with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, where he took prisoners captive and stripped them of their weapons and led them in triumphal procession. But Jesus himself had said that with the coming destruction of Jerusalem, the powers of the heavens would be shaken. In other words, it was another major event in rearranging the heavens as well as the earth. So you've, got to, you've got to see the whole thing as a package deal. Now let me show you then. Um, yes, yeah, so Peter says they're still waiting for this new heavens and new earth. Could I say, please, that even what we already have isn't the final form of things? You know, to give some comfort to people who think, yeah, but what about the future? Yes, of course. The, the gospel must do its work over a long, long age and, and bring many to glory, many sons to glory. But ultimately, Jesus calls it all in, judges the righteous and the unrighteous, and hands the kingdom over to God the Father. All the while, though, through the church, he is destroying powers and dominions and authorities and principalities. In other words, the job of the church on earth is to progressively destroy demonic powers, the powers of the air, and replace them. And I think this is a big part of the functioning. Not only if, you walk, if you'll walk in the spirit, if you'll pray, if you'll exercise authority, you're, you're a part, you're an effective part of the government of Jesus, the administration of Jesus that is overcoming powers and replacing them. But you bear in mind that everyday saints are joining the Lord, you know, to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. And they, they're, not, they're not sitting around on a cloud waiting for the world to be over. You know, they're not just kind of in some bliss listening to music, you know, waiting for the millennia to run down until finally, you know, we can get to the, the real deal. No, you'll find that they will be very active in government and administration, we, we know from the book of Revelation, they pray. Somehow, somehow this huge volume of, of believers who are righteous, who, who are with Jesus, they're very much part of, you know, praying for, believing, perhaps governing. Scripture makes it very cl clear. This is an interesting one. I find this in the book of Ephesians, that with respect to the heavenlies, the body of Christ, which is the church, he's the head, but the body will ultimately fill all things in every way. In other words, the body of Christ ultimately fully, fully replaces the, the administration, the government of God in the heavenly realms, all the invisible stuff, the stuff that you know, originally was just all principalities and powers and fallen, you know, bit, bit by bit, they're all being removed, all being replaced. We, we hardly begin to understand it, but these are the things the scripture speaks of. 
And so, yes, it would be true of Peter to say at any point, and you to say at any point, oh, we look forward, you know, to the ultimate new heavens and new earth. But meanwhile, recognize that the new heavens and the new earth that Isaiah promised and that Peter alluded to, you know, according to his promise, we wait, had something to do, actually had everything to do with the outworking of the gospel on planet earth. Now, Jesus said, Matthew 24, when describing the coming destruction of Jerusalem, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, it was a three and a half year period, but it was at the end, it was at the end that the, the temple is burned and the priests are killed and the city, when the Romans finally conquered, they then destroyed the city, rooted up every stone and plowed the ground. And no, nobody lived there for another 200 years. So it was at the end of the great tribulation that, that this statement is true. Uh, it's, on the, it's on the board. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now this, I've taught all this before numerous times. When it says the sun will be darkened and the moon not give its light, it means the Lord turns his face away, rejects, judges. It's a final judgment. Uh, he removes his grace. There's, there's, there's no more grace for that circumstance. It's all over. It's lights out for Jerusalem. So that's, that's the literal meaning. You know, the sun darkened and moon not give us light. All the light is removed. There's no more word. There's no more grace. There's no more leading of the spirit. And, um, you know, on his way to the cross, Jesus said, if men do this when the tree is green, what will it be like when it's dry? And this is, this is all referring to the same thing, the death of that old system. So uh, the bit I wanted you to see was the last bit. It wouldn't only be on stars fall from heaven. That imagery is the same as we used today. We talk about movie stars. You know, sometimes we say a certain politician, he's a rock star, you know, that kind of stuff, you know. Um, no. These were the leading lights. In Scripture, the stars had, were, were kings, governors. They were philosophers. They were poets. They were educators. And, you know, they were judges. So, in other words, the administration destroyed, real leadership in the nation destroyed. But finally, finally, look what Jesus says. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And so... Um, Jesus is talking about something here that will happen 40 years later, but 10 years before it happened. In other words, 30 years, give or take, after Jesus said that, the fellow who wrote the epistle to the Hebrews wrote this in Hebrews 12, verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth. What time is he talking about? He's talking about Sinai. When the covenant was given at Mount Sinai, the voice of God shook the earth. This is, this is standard Bible knowledge. So at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Now you bear in mind, he's writing this 30 years after the cross. There was an earthquake at the time of Jesus' death. There was another earthquake at the time of his resurrection, but he's not talking about earthquakes. 30 years after that, he's saying something is still coming. 
At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And he tells us why. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. What was being going to be removed? The, the physical temple and the gold on the temple and the altar and the sacrifices and the animals and, and uh, you know, that, that Levitical priesthood and that whole system, material things, outward things, visible things. See, they were things that could be shaken. An army could come in and run the, run the sword through priests. Somebody could light a fire. In fact, it was the Jews that lit the fire that burned the temple down. So the things that could be shaken were shaken. But, and they were removed. But in the removing of those, in the shaking of those, it shook the powers in the heavens as well. That's what Jesus said. The powers in the heavens will be shaken. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. What are the things that cannot be shaken, can't be removed? The cross of Jesus, the shed blood, the scriptures, the day of Pentecost, the, thing, the words that God speaks to us, the life that he gives to us, his, his word. You know, these things cannot be shaken and they remain. In other words, earthly things easily removed, the, the, the things that are truly the heavenly things remain but his, but his add-on comment is critical. Verse 28, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So even 30 years after the cross, even 30 years after the inauguration of the kingdom with the day of resurrection, he's still talking about we're receiving a kingdom. This is a 40-year process of stuff that had to go on, the emancipation of the church. And of course, uh, yes, ultimately there's a conjugate kingdom as well. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. By the way, ask yourself the question, if, if look in that, that right there, it says, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised, and he quotes a promise. Where, where did he promise? Where did he get this promise from? Well, I can tell you who, gave, who, who laid out the promise. It was the prophet Haggai. And it's even more informative to go and read the original version of this statement. So take a look now, Haggai 2, verse 5. According to the covenant that I made, what covenant was this? The old covenant at Sinai, the old heavens and the old earth. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, uh, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. He'd already spent some time saying, be strong, have courage, work hard. Yes, you're under a covenant. I'm still with you. But then he makes this promise. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. Guess what he's talking about? He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about Jesus. I'll shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory says the Lord of hosts, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declared the Lord. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace. As a reference right there to the gospel of peace, the covenant of peace, which is the eternal covenant we have in the blood of our Lord Jesus. This is all wonderful. It's all wonderful. I've got to finish in a minute. 
I said this judgment of the heaven takes place in at numbers of times. Yes, a, a judgment of what, what was in the heavenly realms took place with the resurrection of Jesus. It took place, seriously took place with the AD 70 destruction of Jerusalem. More of it takes place during the reign of Jesus over the millennial kingdom. That is, in other words, the gospel age. We are here to work with Jesus for the destruction of principalities and powers as a result of gospel preaching and your prayers and the sacrificial service of the saints, that's you, as priests, and finally at his appearing, his final coming, the judgment of the heavens. Isaiah 24, he says, On that day the Lord will punish, oh, by the way, if you want to see that when we're talking about heavens and earth, we're talking spiritual things, not natural things, here's a good passage. Isaiah 24, 21. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. Can you see how when the Bible talks like this, it helps us to see the great spiritual realities that are going on. And... Um, and look at verse 23. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. See, this is prophetic symbolism. This is the apocalyptic um, you know, vocabulary. The, these are symbols that mean powerful things. It's not actually talking about the, 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 you know, the cosmos, the literal moon or the literal sun. It's talking about something else altogether. And it's good if you learn these things. So friends, closing with these couple of scriptures. First of all, Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. When the Bible talks about new heavens, it's talking about the change of these powers. Against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly places, a lot has gone on, more is going on until this work gets finished. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. We close by reading together three verses from, uh, it's four verses from Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 verses 19 to 22 we read it as a kind of a communal reading together. You read with me. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Confidence to enter the holy places. That means the presence of God. By the blood, by the new and living way, the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, through the curtain. And it tells us here what the curtain is, his body. So now you know that big old curtain hanging in the old Jewish temple where nobody could go into the Holy of Holies except the high priest once a year, that curtain sim symbolizes the body of Jesus. No wonder in the very moment Je Jesus breathed his last and said, Lord, receive my spirit and died, 
the curtain in the temple was ripped into from top to bottom. Friends, all of the scriptures speaks to the scriptures. So it's, it's all integrated like this. The more you know about the Bible, the more amazing, the more wonderful it is that all these things speak to each other. It's always best that you allow the Bible to interpret the Bible. Anyway, we praise God. Here's just a few things. Uh, I did not take you to the passages. Remember, I started by reading the four places where this phrase theology comes up, New Heavens, New Earth. We didn't have the time to go and examine the context. But if you go and examine the context, what you'll find, it's talking about gospel times in the earth. There's new heavens and new earth that will come, leads into this, this period of new life in the earth, gospel times. Well, we praise God. We're going, to, we're going to pray and the best thing to do, every one of you, is to, is to really yield the heart afresh to Jesus because you have a job. Your job is to walk with the Lord in such a way that you make a difference. You might feel small, we all feel small, but a life lived faithfully and prayerfully helps shift the heavens and shift the earth. You're, you're an important part of a huge work and the Lord knows how to reward the saints uh, in time and in eternity. Remember he says anybody who gives up, you know, houses, land, brothers, sisters, my sake, the gospels will not fail to receive a hundred times as much in this life and, you know, in the next, you know, all kinds of other reward. No, give, give your heart to Jesus. You want to be part, an effective working part of the new heavens and the new earth. Father, I thank you for the word of God I know, Lord, we, there's always a lot we don't know, but thank you step by step, day by day, the Spirit of God teaches us. Thank you for the scriptures, which as we pour over them, we constantly see things given to us by you. We give praise to God. Lord, I pray for all, all my hearers tonight that you would seed into their hearts by the Holy Spirit a real understanding of how they each are to be fruitful for God in the way they pray and the way they live, the way they believe. Lord, these are the saints of the Most High. Teach them your ways. Now come, fill them with the Holy Spirit. Fill them with joy in believing. May the Word of God come alive in every one of them. May it become such a passion for them to, to read and to see into the Holy Scriptures and to be empowered by that word and to live in accordance with it. I ask the Lord, great grace be given to us, to all our people, that we might live holy lives that honor your name. We bless the Lord. We thank you for your word and commit our way into your care, Lord, this night through Christ our Savior. Amen. Yes, amen. God bless you, everybody.